Welcome to the Request 2021 podcast. In the winter of 2021-22, a team of 10 members of scouting, eight from Kent and two from Scotland, will be sailing together on the Bark Europa tour ship from South America to Port Lockroy in Antarctica. The plan is to sail exactly 100 years after two scouts sailed on Shackleton's original quest expedition. I'm Alan Noak and I'm project leader and I'm the person who came up with the whole crazy idea in the first place. Uh, Each of the participants is to carry out an Antarctic research project. So my personal project is to produce a soundscape record of our journey. That's before, during and after Antarctica. The plan is for this podcast to include interviews, scouting historical links, events uh, and research project work that we record along the way. So uh, please join us as we venture to Antarctica and back again on the journey of a lifetime. It promises to be a memorable experience. So welcome, welcome folks to episode 18 of the Request 2021 podcast and this is going out on Thursday 1st of April uh, 2021 and we start this episode with uh, a quick chat with uh, Jan Hoyetsky um, about the upcoming Quest Chronicle project uh, which uh, over the next year or so is going to be a well, an almost day-to-day account of the original Shackleton Rowett Quest expedition. Then uh, we've got some exclusive details uh, of the use of advanced BBC camera technology uh, down on Macquarie Island in Antarctica. Uh, Plus there is the request interview, um, and that's with Stephen Scott Fawcett, who's a polar historian uh, who specialises in the life of Sir Ernest Shackleton. And uh, he's also founder of Sir Ernest H. Shackleton Appreciation Society uh, Facebook group, uh, which now has over 6,000 members worldwide. Uh, So we look forward to that. So without further ado, uh, here's a quick chat uh, with Jan Hoyetsky. Now, Jan is John Quiller Rowett's grandson, and I'm really pleased that he's joined the steering committee of our project um, and he's going to tell you a little bit about Quest Chronicle. So I'm sitting here with Jan Hoyetsky, um, and uh, Jan has recently uh, joined the Request 2021 Steering Committee. Um, so I'm really, really pleased um, to have you on board, Jan. It's a pleasure. <laughs> and... Uh, Jan's uh, come up with an idea that we're going to do and we're going to support with the Request 2021 project. Uh, Jan, would you like to tell us a little bit about Quest Chronicle? Well, we've um, I've always had um, uh, a collection of information about the Quest expedition, which I've like a jigsaw puzzle. I started arranging in chronological order and found that when you do do when you do this, you, you know, you really see a bigger picture emerging. So, so what we thought was that um, having had this information readily available, um, we could we could actually repeat in real time uh, the story 100 years on, um, 
so yeah, so the idea is to um, is, is to release this diary um, almost daily um, over the next uh, twelve to fifteen months, to from now until September nineteen twenty two, twenty twenty two, when the quest came back. Great, and and the the idea is to try and do it as much as we can in real time, isn't it? Um, so uh, we were just uh, uh, thinking about the challenges of uh, what real time actually means in this uh, context, weren't we? Yeah, yes. I mean, is it GMT, BST, South Atlantic, South Georgia time and so on? So um, I don't know whether to be uh, um, uh, uh, interrupting people in the middle of the night with an excited tweet. about. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, we'll see. But we'll work out something that works. And, That's great. Uh, it'll be very close to being real. And uh, people will be able to follow this. I'll put it in the show notes. But um, we've set up a Twitter account. So we're going to actually have some tweets uh, about the Quest expedition over the next year or so. And the name of the Twitter account is Quest Chronicle. <laughs> Um, and questchronicle.org.uk for the uh, blog as well. So we're going to be blogging and um, including photographs, some amazing photographs uh, uh, of, of uh, the Quest expedition and related photos. Uh, so that's questchronicle.org.uk um, for the blog and uh, Quest Chronicle for the Twitter account. So uh, please follow along and uh, you can uh, almost follow the expedition as it was happening 100 years ago. Thanks for that, Jan. That's brilliant. So. No pleasure. Look forward to it. Okay. Okay, so um, that was uh, Jan Hoyetsky and uh, all about Quest Chronicle. So um, next, um, well, I'm sure many of you have uh, come across BBC's recent uh, Attenborough Life in Colour series, and it's uh, highlighted the vital role that uh, colour plays in the daily life of many species. Uh, and this is especially so for the recently discovered so-called invisible uh, king penguins of Macquarie Island. Um, this is an island in the Southern Ocean and it boasts many breeds of penguins, uh, including the royal penguins, king penguins, gentoo and southern rockhopper. Uh, however, using new advanced camera technology, the BBC film crew have captured an absolutely incredible image for the first time of a highly evolved breed of king penguin. Uh, that has dropped its usually bright coloured black and red and orange colourings. Uh, it's dropped them entirely and it's left just a white penguin that can blend perfectly into its surroundings. Now, Sir David Attenborough was quoted as saying, for us, the infinite variety of colours in the natural world, generally it's wonder and beauty, but for animals, it, it's usually a tool for survival. So it's no wonder then that this incredibly evolved penguin has survived and thrived, uh, hidden from potential predators for so long. Uh, so the request team have been granted uh, exclusive rights uh, to auction off a copy of this incredible photograph, uh, which you can see in the show notes. Uh, and we're going to be selling it on eBay to, to raise funds for the Kent Scouts Antarctic uh, Research Project. Um, so uh, look out for it in the show notes and you can bid for a picture of the uh, invisible penguins of Macquarie Island, Antarctica.
So finally, uh, we're going to uh, move on and have our request 2021 interview with Stephen Scott Fawcett. As I said, Stephen is a polar historian uh, who specialises in the life of uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton and uh, also runs the Sir Ernest H. Shackleton Appreciation Society Facebook group. Uh, so many, many uh, followers and uh, highly recommended if you're interested in anything to do with uh, Shackleton and Antarctic uh, polar exploration. Okay, over to our interview. Well, this is it. I came up with the idea of it being a bit like Desert Island Discs without all the stress of having to choose records. Yeah, well, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have any problem with the records. Uh, As you know, my background is scouting anyway. Not um, mm. uh, not that I went on to it in adulthood beyond university, I'm afraid. But, um, you know, it was quite formative for me, actually. And you, you're... I remember you saying it was a, a cub pack quite near to where Shackleton went to school. Well, kind of, yes. Yeah. Coincidentally, yes. Yeah. It was actually called the First Stratham Hill um, uh, Scout Group. Now, uh -huh. that's Stratham, that's not Dulwich, but it's sort of within about six miles. Well, yeah. I don't know whether it's changed its location, but when I was a boy going to it, we're talking about um, the early 60s, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it was based near a school... Um, school called Telford School, it's probably changed, but it was kind of more Ballam than Streatham. Oh, okay. Oh, that was quite a way over then, yeah. They've actually moved, I don't know. I, I think they have, yeah. I think they, they have. have, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we'll kick, we'll kick off with the general sort of, so start with, the, where, where did you go to school and where did you grow up? Yep. Well, I was born in Norwich, mm -hmm. um, but at the tender age of three months, uh, so I don't remember much. I got moved down to London, South London, because my father was in the police force, and he got a transfer from the Norwich Police to the Metropolitan Police. Right. So I was brought up in South London. I uh, went to school at um, Battersea Grammar, which was based in Streatham. Oh, okay. I lived in, in a place called Ballam. Yeah. And um, went, of course, to the, the scout group at the first Streatham Hill in, in sort of Ballam stroke Streatham sort of area. Okay. Um, I always say to people, I was at Battersea Grammar School, naturally people assume that I was therefore in Battersea. Yeah. I know Battersea really quite well, uh -huh. but no, the school started you were... life in Battersea. Got yeah. moved in the war in the last sort of the Great uh, War, okay. the Second World War. Yeah. Got moved to Streatham eventually. Oh, right. So then um, when I'd finished my schooling at so grammar school, mm -hmm. um, I didn't go straight to university. I decided to take some sort of what we now call gap year. Right. But my gap year ended up being quite a few years, and I <laughs> actually trained as a chartered surveyor. Okay. Um, uh, so in you, my early twenties. So you've done chartered surveying, uh, and that was before going to to you went to Cambridge, didn't you? So, yes, yeah. I went to Cambridge. Yeah. Basically, what happened simply was it's quite interesting, I suppose. Um, when I went to, when I finished um, my training to become a chartered surveyor, uh -huh. um, I was given the opportunity of actually a career change, not that I really wanted it particularly, but it came up. It was a church-based thing. I was invited to consider uh -huh. ordination in the Church of England. Ah. So although I was qualified chartered surveyor and adjust, right. um, I did actually um, apply to um, train to be a 
priest in the church. He- ah, hence why you took theology. I saw, I saw that yeah. online. I did a little bit of research, as I normally oh, well do. And, uh, so, yeah. yeah, basically I went to Cambridge University with a view to getting myself fully sort of educated on the theological side. So I got myself my first degree in theology at Cambridge, already being a chartered surveyor. So I went to Cambridge okay. actually at the age of 24. Right. Which was a good thing to do, actually. Yeah, quite good, going a bit a bit later on. So, yeah. Okay. I think I, I got a lot more out of being at the university mm. uh, at that age mm. than I would have done at the age of 18, 19. Okay. And uh, were you able to put a bit of money in your pocket before you went that way? Or? Yes, I was. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it, I was like, quite privileged. Um, I didn't come from a privileged background. My father mm-hmm. being a policeman, I suppose you could say, we were sort of lower middle class types, if you like, so I didn't have a great deal of wealth behind me. But yes, um, studying and then becoming a chartered surveyor, what I actually did was I, I worked um, as a, what they called a cadet valuer, if you like a trainee surveyor with the Inland Revenue, as it was called in those days, a civil service position. Right. And got paid rather well. Okay. Um, so that when I eventually left <laughs> yeah. that um, and went to, to university, I, I drove up in a rather smart car, I have to tell you. Wow. Um, yeah, so, that's the money. Um, yeah. <laughs> and all rest of it. Maybe a little bit of jealousy from your fellow students? or No, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And um, now I don't know if this happened or not, but it, it mentions in the um, in the Fitzwilliam College newsletter that you walked to the South Pole unaided. Now, did that happen? Uh, no, it's a bit of a myth. Ah, right. Was, um, okay. It's one of those things that um, get to take us slightly out of context. Right. Um, Fitzwilliam got hold of me really. Yeah. Um, when they'd read a number of articles uh, about Shackleton that I had authored. Okay. Um, and I did at some point in a long conversation with someone at some time say that I had gone as a tourist, really, as people right. start doing. Yeah. Um, to the south. Um, back in the late nineties, uh, okay. uh, that I'd only wish to God that I could have then just carried on walking from the ship, okay, to the South Pole, so, and it got rather twisted. It's one of these Chinese Chinese whispers. candid. I do have a certain sense of humour, and uh, if, if I'm in ordinary conversation, typically private conversation, rather uh-huh. than sort of going too public. Um, I'll, I will twist the truth and yeah. I will sort of yeah. have a little glint in my eye and I will say, well, <laughs> yes, you know, when I was last on the summit of Everest, it sounded quite difficult. Um, and, you know, when I went to the pole unaided and I kind of run it for a little bit. The trouble is, as you rightly say, these things then get sort of mentioned. This one's actually printed in the newsletter. <laughs> yeah, it, says, sort of, um, it says Stephen explicitly walked. Pole, yeah. <laughs> but no, no, I, I haven't walked unaided to the South Pole at all. Okay. Uh, the, the, the exact quote is Stephen tackled Antarctica and walked to the South Pole unaided. <laughs> yeah, what can I say? Um, listen, I've got to tell you a story brief, briefly about another expedition of that course. I never went on. Uh-huh. Um, but I kind of was partly involved in sort of first creating, and that was one that Henry Worsley and two others went oh, to the right. footsteps of Shackleton. Yes. Um, where they wanted to celebrate the sort of final sort of 97 geographic miles of the Nimrod expedition where mm-hmm. as you might remember Shackleton turned round and mm-hmm. came back mm-hmm. um, and um, for this expedition uh, I wanted um, <clears throat> to go uh, and do this in a totally replicated fashion 
but could never really find the financial support. Right. And Henry came along with two others and said, can we um, take your idea over, but we're going to modernise it and do it rather differently. Right. And, and they did. Well, anyway, I got um, interviewed by journalists <laughs> up here in Norfolk where I live, and you can uh -huh. see where this is going. Yeah. And I said at some point on a television, on a telephone call to a journalist, um, I hoped... I, I, did a, I hope that I might perhaps be able to fly to the South Pole right. and shake hands with Henry and the two other guys <laughs> as, they, as they arrived at the pole. It uh -huh. was like a surprise. Uh -huh. Well, you know, I got quoted as saying, I will yes. go to the South yes. Pole. I will <laughs> shake hands. Oh, dear. Uh, very difficult, isn't it? <laughs> Oh dear! It's it's funny how the the press grab these things and they they will twist it and turn it exactly as they wish. So, okay, and I, yeah. I sometimes get a little bit kind of um, caught up with my own sort of um, humour, and I, 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 uh -huh. I sometimes just let it run if people want to believe these things. Yeah, as long as I'm not sort of trying to gain any real profit from it. Yeah, I let them think what they like and. Um, you know, if it's opened a few doors for me, if only inadvertently in the past, well, it has done. Exactly. Uh, but I would never, you know, directly claim fame to these things. Just yeah. a, just a so, wish that, um, you know, like you and others, you know, we sit in our chairs and we're armchair enthusiasts. Yes, and, uh, exactly. We these things, don't we? So well, you have been down there a number of times. Though, have you, you, yes, yeah. I've been back uh, really mainly as a visitor, not really in any mm -hmm. professional capacity. Mm -hmm. Um because I have such a difficult life with so much going on mm. that I'm, I'm not, you know, although I'm, as you'll find, uh, I'm passionate about the Antarctic. It's yes. not something that I can give 100% of my time to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the fact, of, the fact of the matter is that unless you are engaged in science down in the Antarctic mm. um, or you are on a on expedition that you know, is being fully funded, yes. um, the logistics are so difficult that getting down there other than as a visitor mm. um, are pretty small. And mm. even when I was doing some PhD work later mm. in my life at the Scott Polar Research Institute, and I thought I could drop a few big hints <laughs> to various people going down there in a kind of official capacity. Right. It's the sheer expense of, yes, you know, of an still, individual being yeah. transported and looked after down in the Antarctic. We talk about many, many tens of thousands mm -hmm, of pounds. Mm -hmm. So yes, I've only ever been as a visitor. Okay, and and in your day job as a chartered surveyor, I see you 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 popping up on Facebook with all these wonderful buildings that you survey. So <laughs> yes, uh, tell us a bit more about that. Well, I've but, been a chartered surveyor now. Actually, I have to confess, about forty-two years. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's a lifetime and a half, isn't it? Really, um, and as a result of my sort of longevity, um, I've become fairly sort of expert, if you like. In, uh -huh. um, all sorts of types of property right. uh, that I survey and value, but particularly, uh, I'm very passionate about period property. Lovely. Houses built sort of back in the Tudor times, in uh -huh. like in Jacobean times, these sorts of buildings. Lovely. And, um, they're quite complex, so mm -hmm. I get a great deal of pleasure. Funny enough, I've just seen one yesterday uh -huh. um, in Suffolk. Right. Uh, delightful property. Um, so I, I like to take photographs of these things, you know? Yeah, no, I certainly, uh, I, every time I see one, I think, oh, wow, that looks incredible. I mean, some of the buildings well, are just incredible. Because the one I saw <laughs> yesterday was a multi-million pound property. Uh -huh. Beautiful, one of the nicest ones I've seen. And I, I never took a photograph because I've seen uh, so many lately. All right. You become a, you become a bit immune to. <laughs> it's, okay. it's interesting because yeah. when people ask me, would I like to live in such a place? Right. It, the fact is, I wouldn't. 
uh, because I know too much about them. And, I know and they need so much care and maintenance. Yeah. Well, you know, they're, yeah. They're wonderful things to, 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 to look at. And uh-huh. they're, they're quite, it's quite a privilege to be inside one. But the reality is that you know, the sheer cost of upkeep, um, even if one had the money, you know, you have to ask the question, uh, is it worth spending thousands a month on uh-huh. maintaining a beautiful building? Yeah. When that money could go elsewhere. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, that's really, it must be fascinating visiting. So, I mean, I, I love English Heritage and National Trust and visiting old buildings. So, to actually see some of the private ones must be very interesting sometimes. So, yeah, I've been yeah. very lucky in my yeah. career to see some beautiful buildings and to meet some very interesting people. All right. Tell me more about your involvement with the, with the Himalayas. Yes, well, back in 19, sorry, 2005, I had the great um, pleasure and privilege of becoming friends with Stephen Venables. Now, Stephen oh, of course, Venables yes. Yes, I've read his book. Young, yeah. Two weeks younger than me. Uh-huh. No, older than me. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot in common age-wise and also educationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met him at the James Caird Society in London. Right. Um, he was doing something that we were kind of assisting and sponsoring. Uh, he was doing something as a mountaineer, mm-hmm. uh, along with um, Conrad Anker and um, Reinhold Messner. Uh, right. Basically, arguably the three greatest mountaineers living uh-huh. um, at the time and they just wanted to go across South Georgia and follow Shackleton's route. But anyway, yeah. I got to meet him because of the polar connection. Yeah. Now, Stephen was the first British um, climber to summit Everest without supplemental oxygen. That's right. I read his book. I'm sure there was a book. I read it. Was on, yeah. yeah. Called yeah. Thread. Yes, I've read that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the bottom line is that having befriended Stephen, actually I befriended him before 2005, more like 2002-03, mm-hmm. um, he invited me to go along, just purely as a trekker, to walk to Everest Space Camp, which of course a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, it was, in the end, you know, quite a challenge. It wasn't a technical climb, but it's mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. a Sunday afternoon stroll, I can assure you. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went to the Nepalese uh, continent for the first time, or country to the first time in 2005. Yeah. Um, sadly, Stephen's father died in oh. the middle of our trek, so we had to right. fly home. But I was, in, how can I put it, initiated into the country, which is Nepal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was also totally and utterly overwhelmed by my experience uh, oh, trekking wow. in the Himalaya. Yeah. Now, since 2005, so we're now talking about 15 years, yeah. with one or two small exceptions, I've been back to Nepal once a year, sometimes even twice a year. Wow. And I have picked different routes and I have trekked and partly climbed quite a bit of the Nepalese Himalaya. I'm not a climber, I'm mm-hmm. not a mm-hmm. professional mountaineer. So more of a mountain walker. I'm yeah. a mountain walker. Yeah. I probably yeah. have got... To my highest point probably was about six and a half to six nine thousand six hundred nine sorry six thousand nine hundred meters, which right. is still you know, considerable compared to this country. Yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. Twenty two thousand feet, whatever. Mm. It's mm. pretty high. Mm. And um, and of course, I've had to deal with all the kind of altitude issues. Yes. And then in the process of all that, um, what happened was two things. First of all, I kind of got to know the, the Nepalese people better. Um, and began to embrace one or two disadvantaged families, mm-hmm. uh, as you kind of probably do, mm. um, to the point that really for 15 years I have been sponsoring a particular family. Oh, it's fantastic. Been a real pleasure. Yeah. 
um, and I've been, you know, I've been sort of accepted by these people as one of their own and all yeah. that. Lovely. Um, and then yeah. the, the second sort of spin-off mm. is that um, I met my my new wife because I'm married right. for a second time. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so Lakshmi, um, we've been married since 2012, eight yeah. years now. Yeah. And she's Nepali. Okay. Um, and okay. I met her when this is interesting. I was with Stephen Venables on yet another expedition, if you like. We'd actually climbed, uh, gone very high anyway, right. um, yeah. around a local mountain area. Yeah. And when we were coming back from a very tiring trip, mm. we camped. It was a camping thing, yeah. wild camping. And we camped outside a building in the middle of nowhere, which we assumed was an animal shelter, uh-huh. uh, only to wake up in the morning and find human beings inside <laughs> living. Right. And so it was a family. So it was almost like a like a bothy, was it? Yes, that yeah, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. There was a, a proper family living there. Yeah. And um, I married the daughter. Wow. <laughs> God, that's that's quite a story. <laughs> okay. In 2008. Okay. Wow. And so you've you've been going back regularly, you know, yeah. and, and uh, I've encouraged uh, the family that I've been sort of sponsoring. Really, basically, means. A young man who, when I first met him, was 15, mm-hmm. had a rather difficult story to tell about family life. Right. And I embraced the family as well. Yeah. And um, his name is Rabindra. Now yeah. he is 30 years of age. Okay. And, so you've um, seen him grow up. Uh, early months or years when I was helping him at school and helping the family. He's now grown up, of course, to be mm. an adult. Mm. And, um, and I kind of encouraged him to run a little trekking business in Kathmandu. Yeah. And so, yes, I'm a trekker, but I've also been a small businessman in the sense that I have been helping Fantastic. Uh, with a small trekking company in Kathmandu doing okay. bespoke treks. The idea was to take one or two treks a year only, not a sort of big catalogue right. of options. And we would just, I would just gather, you know, people who know me and trust me, mm-hmm. and they would come with me to Nepal. Right. Um, and then I would already have a ready-made team of Nepalese guides and Sherpas oh, and people and also porters. Yeah. Uh, and we'd also know the routes because I would have mm-hmm. done them personally anyway mm-hmm. and take these people around the mountains. Now, the idea behind that was I knew where we were going. I knew how to do it safely. I mm-hmm. knew how to treat the Nepalese people properly. Yeah. As not all trucking companies do. Yeah. Um, and um, there was a little bit of profit uh, typically left at the end of the day, which was about enough to feed my sponsor family, the family that I've been oh, great. after, yeah. for maybe, you know, six months. Yeah. So everyone was winning, really. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, so now we're going to take you right back now to what is the earliest thing you can remember? This is embarrassing because um, I don't know whether I should say this. Um, (laughs) It was really up to you what you share. No, I don't mind um, sharing it. It's just it is indeed my first memory. Uh And it's a kind of vague one of walking with my mother through a crowd of people who seem to be clapping at me. Oh. And going to a strange man who, who looks a hundred years of age, uh-huh. and receiving a little kind of certificate and something or other, yeah. and to be told later in life that I just won the body baby competition at Case the Holiday Camp. <laughs> oh, fantastic! <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a, no, that's a lovely first memory, yeah, though. From here, yeah, <laughs> you won a won a certificate at that age, so that's good. Okay. And um, and this is our special question for this podcast. So, um, if and 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 very sort of relevant to yourself. 
Um, yeah. if, if you could meet with Shackleton, if you could go back in time and actually meet sure. with him, what is it you would want to know? What would you want to ask him? Can I cheat and ask two questions? Of course you can. Right. Yeah. Well, the first question would be one I think I know the answer to, but I just want to have it confirmed. Yeah. And I really want to ask him just what his true feelings towards Scott were. Ah, okay. Um, but I think I know the answer. Uh-huh. I think he, he very much admired Scott, but perhaps was a little bit bewildered sometimes by the way that Scott perhaps behaved towards him. Okay. Uh, or do I say his wife? Yes. Um, so we think that's possibly is what happened, but you'd love to have it confirmed. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Now, the question I think that um, has become relevant more in kind of the social discussions I'm having uh, with all the polar people I'm involved with these days, mm-hmm. that I'm not, I wasn't that terribly interested in once, but now I think I am becoming interested in. And I would ask Shackleton the simple question, why, sir, mm-hmm. did you not allow the award of polar medals to five of your men ah. involved in the endurance expedition? Okay. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's, it's a, a very topical, of course. It is a topical I'm not thing. By it because I tend to think that history is what it is, and I'm not one of these people actually who advocate for sort of posthumous awards and all that kind of thing. Yes, um, but there's quite a quite a growing lobby of people who think otherwise. Yeah, so you'd love um, to know the of, reason. So, um, well, out of respect for them, you yes, know, the people who who generally are mystified why some apparently good men didn't get their polar medals. So, and also because I'm a polar historian, and it's a kind of a bit of a, a gap in the knowledge. Mm-hmm. There's nothing written down. Mm-hmm. There's nothing at all empirically there for commentators to say, this is the reason why. You know, so it is a mystery. You share this why. question because uh, uh, Kathy Mummery, who I've interviewed already, that... Okay. What, what what was she specifically wanted to know about Chippy McNeish, um, and why he didn't get the polar medal? So I think between the two of you, you we we can we can really <laughs> grill Shackleton and find out why this didn't happen. So. I think it's all part <laughs> of the same brush. You yes. know, it wasn't just Chippy. No, there, I didn't um, realise there was five. Yeah, um, yes. And um, I think it's all down to the same kind of reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, unbelievable truth. Is there is there something you could tell us uh, that might surprise us about you? Something we might not expect? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now let's let's have, have what's what's um what might be surprising to people. Okay. Um, well, it, it's kind of um something that never actually happened. Okay. But it nearly it nearly happened, and whether I would have succeeded in achieving it is is something else. But about <laughs> ten years ago, right. I flew off to Chicago to the international headquarters of the uh, Rotary International Organization. Right. The Ro- Rotary Clubs. Okay. And I was a member of the Rotary Club in those days. I'm not now, but yeah. because I'm just too busy. But, yeah. Um, um, and I wanted their um, sanction on a project that I had cooked up, um, emanating partly from my interest um in one day walking to the South Pole, actually. Yeah. I'm probably a bit too old for it now. Okay. Um, my interest in trekking in the Himalaya, because that's part of my life. Yes, of course. Just, yeah. I do do a lot of trekking in the Nepalese Himalaya. Yeah. And so I found myself in Chicago talking to a representative of the president, um, looking for their support um, uh, to walk the globe. Now, okay. a lot of people have cycled the yeah, globe, yeah. walked the globe, swum across various seas, uh-huh. rode across various seas, climbed up mountains and all that kind of stuff. Right. No one 
Yeah. Um, unless someone corrects me. Yeah. No one has actually taken the seven continents that you can see on our globe. Yeah. And taken the longest crossing point from you know west to east, okay. north to south. Yeah. Um, and walked it. Wow. Cycled it. <laughs> uh-huh. or Whatever it. Yeah. You know what I mean. So you've you've um, put this together as a possible as possible project. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So it was a serious intention. And, uh-huh. um, it was going to take me just on three and a half years. Wow. And would involve me occasionally flying home. Uh-huh. Um, because of the logistics. It's yes. Such that you have to. And, and there was a complication because I intended to walk from effectively the south of, of Africa to the north of Africa. The trouble right. was of course, the yeah. longest crossing point took me through three or four very dangerous yeah. countries. Yeah, possibly, um, yeah, through the con- Congo, yeah. Yeah. And you have to then also understand that the implication of what I'm saying is that I would take, um, in theory, the longest crossing point of Antarctica, being one of the continents. Oh, my word. Uh, which, of course, one, yeah. one probably couldn't do, should yeah. be known. Yeah. Uh, a, because of the sheer length of the duration. And secondly, it just was potentially very, very dangerous. You know, we talk about wow. the Antarctic and crossing the yeah. Antarctic. Yeah. But these are all fairly well-known sort of routes. Mm, mm. My longest route across Antarctica would actually be really pioneering because it wow. wouldn't be, you know, from McMurdo to the South Pole to <laughs> no, whatever. No, no. Um, but I thought, well, whether this was totally doable or not, it was a fantastic opportunity. Uh-huh. Um, and the Rotary International were quite happy to sanction it. They weren't going to sponsor it. No, but they would they put were happy a, for me yeah. to, to fly their flag because my intention was to walk through this sort of the world over yeah. three to four years yeah. um, and make a point of popping into one or two local um, local rotary clubs right. just for the publicity of it and to help them raise money themselves for their own local needs. Yes. You know, Stephen from the UK on his global march is wow. coming to, you know, whatever, you know, Bogger Town <laughs> yeah, yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> and, um, you know, would you like to meet him? It sounds an incredibly ambitious project, but a wonderful, well, and it's, it's there for somebody to do. Isn't it, really? It's there for somebody to do one day, maybe. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's there for a challenge yes. for someone who's obviously younger than me now. There we go. I mean, I think the gauntlet has been laid. If anyone wants to uh, take Stephen up Never on that, then, then he can tell done. you the route to follow. That's mm. great. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, let's go back to Antarctica. So I, I understand you're going down there just after us. You're going on the on the ice tracks, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, ice trek. Yeah, ice um, trek. Ice sorry. Track, sorry yeah. Ice yeah. tracks. Yeah. Um, have very kindly invited me as one of their guests. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, the implication, I think, is that I might be um, giving one or two lectures. Yes. Um, well, what is particularly interesting to me for, for this is that, um, quite apart from the opportunity of of, um, of meeting some great people again, many mm-hmm. of whom I, I do know, mm. um, and of course many of them are Shackleton related, mm. well placed. Again, I know these people fairly well. Yeah. Um, but for me, I've alluded uh, already to the fact I've done some PhD work. Now my PhD is incomplete uh, for reasons I shan't bore you with. Them, right. And I I was at the Scott Polar Research Institute um, uh, as a PhD researcher. Um, from about 2011 mm-hmm. to 2014-ish, yeah, and then I had to break off for various other professional reasons. Mm-hmm. But my my um my research wasn't Shackleton. My research um was um about um 
uh, an expedition which we call the British Graham Land Expedition. Yes. Now, okay, Graham yeah. Land was the yeah. name. Yeah, this is the name that we British gave what we now call the peninsula. The reason yeah. why I'm saying all this is that, um, so I found myself at Scott Polar Research Institute, you know, pouring over all the archival material of the expedition. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is the British Graham Land Expedition 1934 through 37. Right. Um, I was the first researcher accessing these documents, which is why I did it. Oh, wow. And I was invited by Scott Polar mm-hmm. to do it. Um, and what I'm saying is, I spent all this time sort of looking at all these notes and doing all my research, and I've got enough information um, as I stand here talking to you yeah. uh, to write a definitive book. And ironically, I was talking to Stephen Paddlesley about this. Okay. It must have been four years ago now. Yeah. About co-writing a book, actually. Yes. Because I'm just too busy. Yeah. Um, it hasn't gone further than that, I'm afraid, at the moment. But the point I'm making is that my trip down with Ice Tracks and Angie mm-hmm. Butler and her mm-hmm. team um, will be my first opportunity of getting to that part of the Antarctic that I know quite well from my research. Great. Um, I now yeah. know the early sort of days of ex- sort of exploration and mm-hmm. discovery of the fact that it's, it is a peninsula and not an archipelago, for uh-huh. example. Uh-huh. And so I'm going to be really interested to see for real some of the things that I've been sort of reading about. Oh, fantastic. It all links up. That's great. It does, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that's good. Now, when you go to Antarctica, is there, is there a favourite food that you like or something you like to take with you? Emergency rations. Yeah, you're going to laugh at this. Um, <laughs> not so much when I've been in the Antarctic, because as I say, I've been really a visitor. I haven't really been, right. um, you know, a traveller in the sense of across the ice for much. I've uh-huh. got some ice, uh-huh. think, certainly, uh-huh. um, in Antarctica when I've been um, on my way between McMurdo and uh, Cape Royds and Cape Evans. Mm-hmm. I've done this sort of journey there. Yeah. Um, in 2000. That's and, where some um, of the huts are, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I'm very, very passionate about the huts yeah. and their preservation, yeah. conservation, and um, in a way, in a very small way, I kind of got involved with Nigel Watson, the director of the Antarctic Heritage Trust, uh-huh. back in the early noughties, yeah. to, um, to, to, to consider, um, along with other people who are much more qualified than I am, a programme of, of restoration, um, conservation, whatever. Um, and so I'm very passionate about those. So I took the opportunity in 2000 when I was there at one point of going to see the huts. And uh-huh. it was really quite quite a wonderful thing. Wow. I'm but, very jealous um, of that. <laughs> when I'm trekking around the Himalaya, which is a little bit more appropriate, mm-hmm. um, and I'm often miles away from civilization and quite near, for example, the Tibetan border, uh-huh. and usually quite high up in the sky, um, <laughs> I fantasise about a nice sirloin steak. There we go. <laughs> Chips, peas, butter mushrooms, and a whole dog of English mustard. Oh, fantastic! I rest my case. <laughs> That's it. I mean, I can imagine them, them absolutely. You know, Scott and Shackleton doing exactly the same. You know, so. <laughs> you know, if you read, you know, about these things, you mm. read about expeditions and even mountaineers yeah. doing their thing in the Himalaya wherever because I read a fair bit of mountaineering work as well now. Uh, yeah. Um it's a common thread. Mm. You know, when you've been deprived of normal diets for a while. Yes. You you literally do sleep and fantasize <laughs> about, you know, all these things that you can have at home. That's it. More to the point, it's actually quite soul destroying. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, um, of course. You know, you really, yeah. really, really, really do 
then know that you're you know you're missing these things these these creature comforts if yes you like. yes and um, it's actually not very good psychology you know you have to not think about these things <laughs> because it becomes they become you know quite quite painful yes yeah these thoughts and very difficult to not think about something so yes yeah, yeah we can laugh about it now but yeah. i can tell you that when i've been up in the mountains um and and really missing a decent bit of you know, steak and chips or, there you or go. just ordinary English food. It's actually not, not a laughing matter. No, right? definitely not. But it can be, can, can, <laughs> can, can keep you going and it can be motivational on these long journeys. So, yeah. Okay. As long as you get, get that at the end. Yeah. So, this is the point. Yeah. <laughs> when you come back from wherever you've been out in the middle of nowhere and you sit down and have this meal and it's, you know, it's, it is like, you know, paradise really. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and is there something special you like to take with you when you travel, well, particularly? Odd because I yeah. don't think if I took this um, object to Antarctica, it would survive very long in the cold. Oh, okay. Um, but another part of who I am, which we haven't talked about because you know there's only so much you could say, yeah. is I'm, I wouldn't call myself an accomplished musician, but I am a musician. Okay. You know, I do compose. Yeah. Um, really simple melodies, if the truth be known. I, I've gone public with a bit of stuff on Facebook if I'm also honest about it. Okay. People have seen me perform and it's I'm not, as I say, a professional musician. However, right. if I was able to, I would like to take my Roland uh, it's a digital oh, piano. Yeah, yes, of course. Um, it's quite a, an expensive piece yeah. of machinery. Uh-huh. Um, but it's I, I, I use it most days just to, to kind of de-stress. Yeah, they were extremely um, popular in the in the eighties and things. All right, yeah, the Roland uh, is like like um, what's it like a synthesizer almost? Well, or yeah, is this a... is actually called a digital piano, right? Um, and its technical um uh, name is an HP two hundred and seven E. Wow, basically, it's yeah. a few thousand pounds worth of equipment. Uh huh. And yes, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an electric machine, but it's a, an instrument, I should say. But it's really a, a piano, but it has, of course, all the orchestral stuff. Yes. Um, it also has the um, recording facility as well. Main... And you, you can basically sort of um, multi-layer the music wow. as you play it. So, as you say, maybe not as convenient as a harmonica or something for Antarctica, but yeah. Not, but I mean, okay. I, 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 I think I'd be so stressed um, in Antarctica. Um, it might, you probably want to get on my piano and play. And play, basically. wonderful. Yeah, we'd have to get some big batteries for you. It would right. have to be a solar panel. Thing, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then just finally, Stephen, you have your thoughts about Antarctica as a continent. Yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you feel about well, Antarctica? Thank you. I mean, it's quite yeah. a, a great opportunity just to share. Um, you know, obviously my background is I'm an armchair enthusiast really for 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I've been to the Antarctic, as we've said. Yeah. And as you probably realize, I do write a lot about it yeah. historically. Um, what with a Facebook group and, uh, in fact, I'm on the James Care Society committee, and I'm the mm-hmm. uh, editor of their journal, so I mm. do a lot of writing. Mm. Um, so what do I think about Antarctica? As a result of all that kind of knowledge that I've accumulated mm. and I've shared, um, what it's done is it's kind of crystallized into a deep uh, awareness um, that um, Antarctica as a continent is now standing potentially at a crossroads mm. uh, in, in real terms mm. 
Um, and of course, there is the environment um, issue. There is the global warming issue mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. these other facts which are relevant too. Mm. Um, but what I mean by crossroads is, um, as most people know, um, in 1961, the mm-hmm. Antarctic Treaty uh, was ratified. Mm-hmm. This has morphed into something called the Antarctic Treaty System, mm-hmm. the ATS, where various modifications have occurred over the years, and the ATS meet people of the members of the Antarctic Treaty System. They meet um, all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I should know how many times they meet. You know, once mm. every two years or five. I'm sure I can't recall. Um, and things get modified. Now the point is, the Antarctic Treaty was all about what I like to call Pax Antarctica, as opposed to Pax Romana. Mm. In other words, mm. it was a treaty to diffuse tensions, uh, geopolitical tensions that were rising at the time, particularly between the Soviet Union, as it was, mm-hmm. and America, mm-hmm. over territorial claims. And things like mineral rights and things. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this, is, yeah. this is the bottom line, isn't mm. it? Mm. Um, now, of course, um, the United Kingdom are not exempt from this, um, nor other countries such as New Zealand, Australia, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the point is, the crossroads I think we've reached at, or are about to reach, is precisely that, first and foremost, the Antarctic Treaty is being held over. It was only meant to last for 40 years. Right. So we've been holding over ever since, so to speak, is the technical term. Yeah. Um, Secondly, um, what with global warming, which has come along to sort of hit us on the back of the head, Certain parts of, of the polar regions, in particular the Arctic region, um, are now much more accessible for such things as mineral extraction mm-hmm. and investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is already happening down south as well, and, and to be honest, the British are involved. Yeah. Um, and what I'm concerned about um, is how this is all going to unfold. Yes. Um, because increasingly, as the, as, as the climate allows greater access, and this is a process, it's not going to happen overnight, mm-hmm. but as, as, as the climate appears to be allowing greater access to certain parts of Antarctica, um, and as you know, um, more and more scientific stations um, tend to become slightly more than uh, scientific stations, because that's what right. they should be under the Antarctic yes. Treaty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and things like military hardware and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is, um, uh, what's the word, uh, not allowed under mm. the Treaty. Mm. And yet, I know for a fact that such hardware does exist okay. in places okay. without being too No, no, okay. So, um, yeah. What I think I'm saying is that I fear that we're going to come to a point where some of the major international interests uh, are not pointing fingers at the moment to any particular mm-hmm. country, mm-hmm. but most people will know who they are, mm. um, will start to flex their muscles Yes, um, because of the economic realities and opportunities. Mm. And frankly, who is there going to be available to police anything down there? Right. Um, no one. It's so incredibly it's important. Continent, yeah. Potential free for all. I'm very concerned. Mm. Um, I think it's a very real concern, and you know, if it, the more you read about the Antarctic Treaty, and uh, as you say, it's it 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 was put in place at, at a very different time, yeah. um, and there are pressures and things now which you know will affect governments and will affect countries in in very different ways from then. So, yeah. Yes, but I uh, think there is 
you know, they, there's always been, maybe I'm wrong, but I yeah. think I'm probably right. There's always been an agenda. Mm. You know, whichever side oh, absolutely. Agree, yeah. Um, you know, it's all very well under the Antarctic Treaty system to mm. say we're, you know, we're just doing science. And mm-hmm. Of course, the science has been done by some of the best scientists with the best intentions and achieving incredible results. Mm. Mm. But the truth is that that, that the paymasters yeah. um, are those sitting in, you know, places of, of power back in Europe. Mm. And, um, mm. And in North America, and um, their their agenda is not really holy science. I'm no, afraid. no. Thank you for sharing that. It it is it really is a sort of a, 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 an interesting way to finish the interview because I I think you've you've finished on a on a note that uh, will certainly get people thinking and talking. So thank you for that. You're very so, welcome. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> So thanks for listening. To find out more about the Request 2021 project and how you can support and follow our progress, just visit our website on www.request2021.org.uk. That's www.request2021.org.uk. And uh, please give this podcast a review, share it, and uh, and spread the word to anyone you know who's interested in Antarctica. Thank you.